from the very beginning. All of creation pointed to him. Every prophet told of him. Every story spoke of him. His message is for everyone. His mission has never wavered. His vision is eternal. His passion brought him suffering and his purpose was fulfilled. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Uh, well, good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome to Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, as we journey with Jesus to the cross and then next Sunday to the resurrection, the Easter Sunday. I can't wait. So excited. So welcome back to our series, too. We're in this great series just called Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything, right? It's just Jesus, because Jesus is the hope that we have and the life that he brings. It's all about Jesus. Now, what we've said so far is this. It's only Jesus who could change a heart. Right? It's not the government, and governments have come and gone throughout the centuries, it's, and they're great, and they keep order, but it's only Jesus who can change a heart. It's not schools, there's been schools that have come and gone and can teach a lot of things, but it's only Jesus who can change a heart, right? It's not nonprofits and meeting social needs, it's important, but it's only Jesus who can change a heart. And that's why we've seen Jesus' message and his mission, his vision, and today we'll see his passion and his purpose see, this is what separates Christianity from every major world religion. Every major world religion is about man trying to get to God. If I can do enough good things, then maybe God will accept me. Maybe God will look down and go, hey, okay, maybe you can come in. Maybe your good outweighs your bad. But, but Christianity is God coming to us in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our brokenness. God sent his son, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. And Jesus' message is a message of love. And that's radical, right? But it's what the world needs today. It's what we need in our hearts and our lives. The love, the love of Christ. And so Jesus' message is love. His mission has been to change the world and what he's done. His vision is that all people matter to him. And today we're going to see his passion. His passion. Now let me ask you this question as we start this morning. Here it is. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to to die for? Uh, pretty tough question, right? But you think about it, through the centuries, people have died for a lot of different reasons. There have been a lot of wars, a lot of battles. People have, have died for their country. People have died for a cause. Uh, people have died for honor. Many people have died for meaningless things. But what about you? What are you willing to die for? It's interesting that we sit right here in this warehouse that sits on a plot of land that the Battle of Franklin took place. And right in this area right here, 9,000 men died. 9,000 men died. Uh, many for country, some for their families, some for their property, some for that's a total wrong reason. But 9,000 men died. What are you willing to die for? Martin Luther King Jr. said this, a man who does not have something for which he is willing to die is not fit to live. I'll never forget when we had our first child and I was in the hospital room and uh, Lisa's giving birth and I tell you, you just, you have so much love for your wife. You know, you just so much respect. I'm just so thankful for her. I love my wife. And, and she gives birth to our first child, Grace, and our 
daughter is born, and the doctors, you know, uh, wash her off, and then waddle her up in these cloths, you know, and then they hand her to me in the squishy face, and I just looked at her, you know, and I'm like, wow. And I gotta tell you, if you're a parent, you know that moment, right, when you're holding your child, and you're just looking at her, you're like, I don't think I've ever experienced this kind of love. I just, I just couldn't even describe it. I'm like looking at her and I'm thinking, I would do anything for you, right? And you can't do anything for me. You're just gonna cry and poop, you know, like for a long time. But, but I would give my life for you. I would take a bullet for you. I would stand in front of a train for you. I love you that much. I'll never forget that feeling. I think it was that moment I started to grasp a little bit of God's love and just how God loves us unconditionally, even when we can't do anything back. And you just love just oozes out of you. What do you love that much? What are you willing to die for? Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, most people die at 25. They're just not buried until 75. You know what he meant? I mean, that most people guard their hearts so much, right? And they won't sacrifice. They won't have a passion. They won't really demonstrate that love. They just kind of turn in on themselves. and They just kind of live life until they get to 75. And that's it. What about you? What about me? What do we love that much? This is Passion Week. And you know what passion means? Passion means to suffer. And this Passion Week of Jesus really is this week. It's that period of his life, this one week. The Passion of Christ is from Palm Sunday, his arrival in Jerusalem through Good Friday, his death on the cross. Now, the Passion of Christ doesn't include next Sunday. Oh, next Sunday, resurrection. Like, I mean, there is life. It's a joy. It's a celebration. But this week, as we think about how much Christ loves, as we think about the Passion Week and all that he endured for us, and to think about his love for you and for me. Jesus said this, greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That he lay down his life for you. Let's talk about that today. If you have a Bible with you this morning, open with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. First book, New Testament. I love it. Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. I'd love for you to have one that's yours. Put your name in it. Take it home with you. Maybe you have a mobile device. You can access the scriptures online at Version. Download it. Keep the scriptures with you. Uh, it's great. I read every morning. Also, we'll put the scripture on the screen. You can follow along with what God's word has to say to us today. So Matthew chapter 21, pick up here in verse 1. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Now, let me stop right there for a moment because here's the thing, right? Jesus has been doing his earthly ministry for about three years. And most of his ministry has been up around the Galilee region, okay? He's come down to Jerusalem a few times for the feast and for the uh, times of celebration. He's come to worship there at the temple. But most of it has been up in Galilee. And during that time, he's been teaching, he's been healing, right? He's been doing all this ministry. And there is a huge following. I mean, there is a big buzz about Jesus. And so he's coming down for the Passover. Now, the Passover is the biggest feast of the year. And Jews, wherever you are, you come to Jerusalem to worship there at the temple. And so, I mean, Jerusalem is packed. I mean, it would swell like four to five times its normal size. A million plus people. People sleeping out of the Mount of Olives. People all around the city coming in. And Jesus approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage 
on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord, notice that Lord, capital L, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So Jesus is so intentional in this week. Okay, he's already been warned, right, by the religious leaders. Hey, you come back to Jerusalem, you will be killed. But Jesus is like, set his face. I know what God's called me to do. This is what I'm doing. And he's going in to Jerusalem right there. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this was an Old Testament prophecy that was written hundreds of years before this took place. This was written Zechariah 9.9. You could go back and look. In fact, you guys know this book, it's really not a book. It's a collection of ancient manuscripts that were written over a period of 1,500 years. All right? The first book that was written, Genesis or probably Job more likely, around 1450 B.C. The last, Revelation, written around 90 A.D. 1,500 years. Written by over 40 different authors. Okay? I mean, from kings to shepherds, I mean, who, who wrote different proximities. But God brings it all together because it's God's redemptive story. It's the number one bestseller every year. Why? Because the Bible is alive. It's God's truth. In all of the Old Testament, when you read the, all of the Old Testament, it's all pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah is Jesus, right? Man always knew, hey, we need that relationship with God. God is holy, we've sinned, we've blown it, we've messed up, and everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of the one who would make it right. And so the Jews and everybody's expecting the Messiah's gonna come. And he comes on the back of this donkey, right? You know, instead of coming on a stallion ready for war, he's coming on the back of a donkey ready to bring peace to our hearts and hope to our lives. The disciples went, and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. I mean, just picture the scene, right? You've got this whole crowd that's coming with Jesus. His last miracle, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so there's a big buzz about Jesus. So they're all coming in to the city with Jesus. There's already people in the city that are going, oh, it's Jesus, the Messiah. Could he be the one we've been waiting for? So there's this buzz. They're laying palm branches on the ground. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew that the Messiah would be in the line of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, I mean, the, the city's at this fever pitch, right? I mean, everybody is trying to get a look. Everybody's trying to just get a glimpse of Jesus. Well, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now think about that. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see is this. They were looking for a political Messiah versus a spiritual Messiah. A political Messiah, somebody who would come in and, and change their circumstances, right? 
Somebody would come in and, and make things right on the outside, but what Jesus came to do was on the inside. They were looking for someone to overthrow the Romans instead of someone to save us from our sins. And see, that's what happens many times with us, right? Oh God, just change my circumstances. God, God, just get me out of this relational mess. God, get me out of this financial mess. God, God, get me out of these things. Just fix the things around me, God. But what God came to do was change our hearts. To bring grace, to bring hope, to bring redemption, to bring life. And the people had to decide. And so do we. Was Jesus a prophet, a good man, or was he the son of God? The people shouted, the prophet from Nazareth. Now here's the thing about a prophet. In in almost every world religion would look at Jesus and say he was a prophet. But a prophet, right, could say something and people turn away and walk away. A good man, oh, there's other good men who've come and gone. But it's only Jesus who claimed to be the son of God. This is what makes Christianity distinct. This is what makes Jesus distinct. I'm the son of God. What do you believe about that? If you keep going in Matthew 21, the triumphal entry happens. Jesus begins to teach there in the temple. They question his authority, the religious leaders. They thought it was all about religion when Jesus came to make it about a relationship. And Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 21, verse 33, Jesus says, listen to another parable, and we've seen in this series, right, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've seen Jesus teach the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin or the lost sons. Remember, there's two sons that were lost. Now Jesus says, hey, so clearly, this is who I am. And he says, here's another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now, the people listening to the story would have been like, yeah, a lot of wealthy people do that, right? They buy some land, they get a vineyard, right? And they hire some people to come in and run it. And then they come back and they, you know, get the fruit or get the profit. Well, the tenants seized his servants and they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Like, what? I mean, they were getting paid. What's the deal? Why did they do that? Well, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. This is Jesus teaching, right? They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He asked the whole crowd, the crowd says, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. You see, what Jesus was saying was, guys, don't miss it. I'm not just a prophet or a good man. I am the son of God. The landowner in this is God. God's always the star of the story, right? He is the one who owns everything. And God made a way for everybody to have you know, this relationship with him, and we've sinned, and we broke that relationship. And so God sent servants, and the servants came, and you go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and everybody's saying, turn back to God, turn back to God, and, and they mistreated all those servants. If you go back and read the Old Testament, and finally God says, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. 
But Jesus goes, oh no, they're going to kill the son. And what's going to happen? God's going to say, I'm going to hand that over to the Gentiles, to those who believe, to those who will accept my son. Well, the tension begins to mount throughout Holy Week, right? And the tension starts to rise. And if you turn over to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus brings his disciples together and and they come to share the Passover meal. They come to the upper room and and Jesus knows, hey, it's about time. This is all going down. That crowd that was cheering for me, I can feel it. It's turning. And he gets them together as disciples. And Jesus, Matthew 26, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. You know, the Passover meal was something that they had celebrated forever, right? It was a part of their tradition because God said, hey, when I free you out of Egypt, I want you to share the Passover meal to remember my deliverance of you back when they were slaves in Egypt. You remember this when they were slaves in Egypt and they called out for a deliverer and God sent a man named Moses? And these people, man, they had no help. I mean, they were slaves. They had the whole Egyptian army. But God said, I will deliver you. You will be my people. And these plagues happened. And the 10th plague, God told the people, hey, listen, kill a lamb and put the blood over your doorpost of your home for tonight the death angel is gonna come. And the death angel will pass over. That's where Passover comes from. The death angel will pass over those houses that are covered in the blood of the lamb. And sure enough, that night, the firstborn of all the Egyptians died. And that night, Pharaoh said, you are God and I am not. You people can go. And a million people walked out of Egypt and they celebrated every year the Passover. And here's Jesus taking the Passover with his disciples and says, hey guys, don't miss this. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins the blood of Christ that covers our hearts, the death angel would pass over, that we would have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered again. Old Testament prophecy, talking about what would happen to the Messiah. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus, even if all these other guys take off, you know what? You can count on me, right? I'm not gonna do it. Jesus says, Peter, (laughs) I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Did they love him enough? (laughs) Would they be there for Jesus? Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He begins to pray in the anguish. He's praying. Begins to sweat drops of blood. Just the intense passion, knowing what lies ahead. Jesus even prays, God, Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. 
You ever prayed that prayer? God, I don't understand, but, but God, not my will, yours. I'm submitting everything in my life to you. The disciples fall asleep. Jesus wakes them up and says, guys, it's time. And then a mob comes, torches, swords, Roman soldiers, everybody coming to arrest Jesus. And it tells us in verse 56, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. They ran away. They took off. Jesus is taken. He stands before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and it tells us in Matthew 27, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, I'm going to ask you point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? Are you the one that everybody's been waiting for? Are you? Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. He made no bones about right. Uh, yes, make sure you know this. Make sure you get this. Yes. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. He's like, Jesus, do you see what they're saying? They're insults, and you're not even responding. And the governor could see the steadfastness. He was resolute. He knew what God had called him to do. Now it was the governor's custom on, at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus is, who is called Christ? Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ literally means Messiah, the Messiah. Jesus, who is the Messiah. For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate knows, man, wait a minute, this guy, this isn't right. And he thinks, I got this way out. I'm gonna give the most notorious criminal, Barabbas, right? I'm gonna give him a choice. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. A woman's intuition, right? And God speaks to her, she runs to her husband, wait, 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 wait. There's something about this man. He's innocent. Don't do it. Stop. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, persuaded the crowd, persuaded the crowd, the same crowd that was cheering for him, they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify, crucify, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. The same crowd that was cheering, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he didn't meet their expectations just the way they wanted, crucify, crucify. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but then instead of an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. But listen, 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 listen. No decision is a decision. Guys, don't miss that. No decision is a decision. Hey, I'm innocent. I'm not, I, you know, I'm backing away. 
or I'm going to put this off. I'll make a decision later about Jesus. I'm going to put this off. You know what? I mean, I, I don't know. No decision's a decision. I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified on the cross. See, here's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says Jesus was either a liar. I mean, he was, right? Because Jesus came out and said, I am the son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And every one of us has to make a decision. What do we believe about Jesus? How committed am I to Jesus? For you, and for the people back then, is Jesus a savior for a season, or is he Lord for a lifetime? Savior for a season? God help, get me out of this situation. God help, I'm in trouble. And God help, relationally, this is falling apart. Or God help, you know, financially, it's like, and then when we get through that, it's kind of like, okay, I'm back to my own life. I'm back to my, doing my own thing. I'm good, I got it, you know. Or is he the Lord of a lifetime? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what goes on, regardless of what the crowd thinks, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm following you. I love you. And I'm holding on to you. What about for you? What about for me? Palm Sunday, this holy week, demands an answer from all of us. What do we believe about Jesus? How committed are we to Jesus? I read this article recently, and it's about Rick Barnes. Rick Barnes, who is the uh, basketball coach at the University of Tennessee and had a great season. The NCAA tournament lost by one, but, but the article says Rick Barnes isn't the same basketball coach he used to be. He will be and has been the first to admit it. He will tell you that he's glad to no longer be his former self. I've made a lot of bad mistakes where I got so wrapped up in this for all the wrong reasons, Barnes told the News Sentinel in March. I've seen it through the eyes of being a selfish coach, being a coach who was prideful in this and that. But now I realize that there's such a bigger picture for these young guys. According to those who know him best, his two children, our children know us best, right? The change happened about a decade ago. Barnes, 61, entering his second season at Tennessee and his 30th as a head coach, found perspective through his family and through his faith in Christ outside of a 40-minute basketball game. Don't get the wrong impression. He's as competitive, if not more so, than any coach on the bench. The fire is still there to get back to another Final Four to win a national championship. His constant fear is not giving his players everything he has, but he's a different coach with different priorities. At one time, I think I made all the mistakes coaches can make, thinking it's way too important, Barnes said. It's important because it's what we do. I think God created everything we do. I think he created basketball. I think it's the platform that we're supposed to use to be teachers and mentors of young people. His children, son Nick Barnes, a missionary in the Middle East, and daughter Carly Barnes-Lichtig, an adoptive mother who lives in Austin, have helped add to that perspective of their dad's line of work. I think I've learned a lot from my kids, Barnes says. Nick Barnes, 31, doesn't disclose the country he lives in for his own safety. On the mission fields in the Middle East, location specifics are too dangerous. 
The country that I live in, he explained during an interview at Thompson Bowling Arena in December, the four people that I know of that came to faith last year in Christ, one got killed, one got stabbed, one was put in prison, and the other one, her husband divorced her. It's serious business for sure. What led Nick to this business is the same thing that changed the entire Barnes family, their faith. The family went from being culturally Christian, as Nick described it, attending church two or three times a month, to living God-centered lives. The seismic shift was apparent in his dad. I mean, as the scriptures would say, he lived out a new creation, a new person, just much more peace, affection, Nick said. He was a great dad, I had a wonderful childhood, but it's just that the anchor in his soul and his perspective on life and work radically changed. I think the way he sees basketball now is not only to win a lot of games, but to get to pour into young guys and love on them. I think that was always there, but now to a much greater degree. Nick found his life calling in his late 20s. He's wired to be a missionary, his dad said, waking up every day anxious to spread the word, and the job title is permanent. I would hope and pray to die overseas, Nick said, seeing someone come to faith in Christ that would have never heard the gospel. There's nothing else that I could want to live for. We just truly believe he's in God's will, that he's doing exactly what God is calling him to do, Rick said. He loves it. He has an unbelievable passion for what he's doing. An unbelievable passion for what he's doing. What's your passion? What are you so passionate about? What keeps you up? What do you pray for? Has there been a change I love where it just says there was a seismic shift in Rick Barnes' life. God, I'm living it all for you. And when we begin to grasp the depth of God's love for us, man, we can't stay the same. We begin to understand what God has done for us, that God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son who went to a cross, that Jesus' passion led him to the cross where he was nailed to the wood and he died for your sins and for mine. It should have been us on that cross. We're the ones who sinned. Think about this. What was Jesus willing to die for? What was Jesus willing to die for? You. Have you ever thought about that, that there was somebody who died for you? That there was somebody who loved you so much they gave their lives for you. It's called substitutionary atonement. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That you and I might have this relationship with God restored. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. When we are covered in the blood of Christ, he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, you are mine and I love you. And oh, that you and I could love God with that kind of love. God, I'm gonna walk with you. If the crowd's cheering for you, or even if the crowd turns against you, I'm with you. You know, Peter and those guys, they fled that night. But when they begin to grasp the depth of God's love for them, their lives were never the same. And they begin to live God-centered lives and were leaders in the early church and begin to pour out and every one of them ended up dying a martyr's death for Christ. Now, because we live in the United States, 
There may not be a time when God calls us to lay our lives down for him. But if ever it comes, I pray we would. But I believe this. God's not calling us to die for him. He's calling us to live for him. Every day, every moment. And none of us are perfect. And we all have a long way to go. But centering our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. And living our lives for his name and for his glory. And pouring into our children and our grandchildren or those that we coach, or those that we serve at church, or those in our community, and saying, I want to give back, I want to make a difference for the glory of God. My life is fully yours, God. You know, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he brought his disciples together and just said, guys, I want you to get this. Don't miss it. I'm not just a prophet or a good man. I've come to lay my life down for you. And so in the center of the room, to set up a table. And as disciples today, the family of God, the church, we come to this table this morning. And we come with our hearts open to say, thank you. When I was dead in my sins and my transgressions, Jesus, you made me alive. You gave me hope. Jesus, you changed everything in me. And I could never thank you enough. And so I'm gonna invite you this morning to come. There's seven or eight place settings on each side. There's a gluten-free station up here at the front. But to take a piece of the bread, Christ's body broken for you. And think about that, it's personal. It's not just for the world, it's for you. Christ's body broken for you. To dip into the cup, his blood poured out for you and to receive what only God can give, the forgiveness of your sins grace of God. You can use this time to pray, use this time to worship, use this time just to respond back, God, I'm yours. Grow my love for you. Grow my love for others. I'm giving my life to you, Jesus. So, Father God, here we are, your disciples today. And, Father, we come, and so many times we just want you to change our circumstances. <laughs> we come with hurt and pain and brokenness, but God, today, I pray that we would understand you came to change our hearts. And that whatever season of life that we're in, you are gonna be with us and you are for us. And you promise to never leave us or never forsake us. And we see that with communion. That you sent your own son to die for us. So as we come this morning to your table, God, we come with grateful hearts that we love you and we are thankful and that you believe in us and the best of our life is still ahead. And so we come on this Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. We come to worship, to remember, to say thank you and to commit our lives for all eternity to you. It's in the name, the beautiful name of Jesus that we come to your table. Amen. Amen. If you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to come to his table. Every breath we could ever 
you don't hear anything else today, just hear that fact that God loves you. And he loves you so much, he sent his son. And this week, I pray, this holy week, that you would just focus on Jesus. I pray your heart would be open and ready to hear from him. Inside the worship guide, there's a Palm Branch card. I just encourage you sometime this week, maybe just sit down and, and write a thank you note. Just, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for going to the cross for me and dying for my sins and the hope that I have in you. And I'm committing my life to you. After the service, I'll be here. There'll be people on our staff, our pastoral care team. If you want somebody to talk with you or pray with you, that's what we're here for. Maybe you want to make a commitment to be baptized. We're celebrating baptism next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Hey, it's all about Jesus. Our life on this earth, it's short. But we live eternity with him. So let's invest in what matters. Let's live it all for the glory of God. Let's make a difference with the time that we have here, and let's love well.